we'll talk just briefly about a thing or two that happens with Joseph and Mary and Jesus and a few things I think that we can take from it today. Uh, pretty simple and pretty straightforward, um, but I think it's a pretty interesting part of the Christmas story, if you will. It, you know, it's right there in Luke 2 that we don't get a chance to, to talk about very much. So before we move on from all things Christmas, uh, let's include this and let's wrap it up into the Christmas story. It's at the end of Luke chapter 2. And um, it's an interesting thing that occurs. So let me, let me just get you started in the scripture, and then we'll set some context. Uh, so Luke records this. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, and all of this stuff that they're going to experience, you can read about in, in the uh, Torah, in the Old Testament, uh, specifically the, the sections that contain the purification laws. The time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, what Luke is going to record and talk about here at the end of chapter 2, before he gets into the full ministry of Jesus, are a few things that happen with Joseph and Mary. And a few things that they go through where we started right before it in the scripture is just a little note about Jesus being circumcised on the eighth day. And then at that moment, he was given the name that was already given to him by the angel, which was Jesus, Yeshua. It means Savior. And many other things that has come to mean for us but this context says that there's some things that are happening that are according to Jewish customs and Jewish laws and Jewish traditions, which is kind of important because it won't be long until you begin to turn the pages of Luke or really any other gospel, and you'll start to think, Jesus is a different kind of rabbi. He doesn't do things like everybody else. I mean, was he a good Jewish boy or not? I mean, was he raised in a home? where they had respect for the traditions of the elders. I mean, he's going to come head to head with the establishment of the Jewish power center in very short order. And the question that anybody ought to ask is, is he just a rebel dude? Was he raised in a home that had no respect or regard for Jewish laws and especially the specific and prescribed way in which things should be done? And if you have ever wondered that, then Luke 2 answers that question for you. He was a, a very Jewish Jew. He did things according to the law. And he did so because Joseph and Mary raised him this way. I mean, you, you know the, the scope of the Gospels, right? I mean, we know a whole lot about birth and Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth, all that. And then we have this eighth day event where he gets circumcised and named. That's really all we know about that. This one takes a place a little bit longer, 40 days, in fact, after the birth. And then we have one little tiny event when, you know, he's about 12 years old and, and then nothing else until his ministry begins. There's all of this time in between where Jesus is being trained and taught in the ways of Judaism. And it's important that we understand that and know it. So when Luke picks up this story, we're at day 40 from the birth. And they go to a very specific place. They go to the temple in Jerusalem is where they're going to end up. Now, if you remember, Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth. 
If you were around Christmas Eve, then you know that's about, a, about 90 miles or probably about a nine-day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the city of David, which is about oh, maybe six miles, five or six miles from Jerusalem. And so the assumption is, is that they stayed in the area this whole time. It's what you do, maybe, when you make a cross-country trek. I mean, I don't know where you have to go, where it would take you nine days to get there. I mean, you can go around the world in nine days, right? But if you had to go someplace that took you nine days to get there, and you had something else to do in a few weeks, you would just sort of hang, right? We're just going to stay. We don't know where they stayed. They stayed in Bethlehem. Maybe they stayed with some friends. And they, you know, maybe they liked the, the stable. I don't know. Maybe they just thought, this is great. This works. Um, but they stayed probably nearby and made the trek over to Jerusalem to make this happen. Now, this, this purification rites business, like I said, you can read about in the Torah, there are three different things that are happening here. Three different rituals, three different rites that are being performed according to the Old Testament law. The first is that Mary is being pronounced clean or purified. After childbirth, she's unclean. And what's interesting about this passage, it says um, they, they brought their sacrifice. You can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, it says that they brought their sacrifice, which indicates that Joseph was unclean too. Odds are Joseph was the midwife or whatever that helped during the pregnancy. And that would have made him unclean. I mean, literally, he'd have been unclean, right? That's a messy deal. But spiritually speaking, or religiously, ceremonially, he would have been unclean. And so odds are the sacrifice is being offered on behalf of both of them. So that's the first thing that's happening. The second is that there are, they are presenting their baby at the temple presenting their firstborn. That's a very specific ritual and rite. In fact, there was a gate that was just for that on the outside of the temple that they had to walk through. The third thing that's happening that's important is they are dedicating their firstborn. Three different things. And all three things require very specific steps and very specific rituals. I mean, just, just ponder this for a minute. They've just made a nine-day journey. just to get the baby born in Bethlehem. And they're still hanging out a few weeks later. And they have to make maybe a six-mile journey or at least come into the city to go to the temple for these three rituals that have occurred. They've already had one ritual, circumcision occurred. They already gave him the name. I mean, all of this is happening. And in the process, Luke includes this detail. And this is important. What's keeping in the law of the Lord, and he you see in quotes there, it's a reference from a passage in the Torah, a pair of doves or two young pigeons they could bring. Luke includes this detail so that you would have some understanding about who Joseph and Mary are. They're poor. They were supposed to bring a lamb. They were supposed to bring a perfect sacrifice of a lamb. But they can't afford it. And so there's a provision in the law for those that don't have much, that surely you can scrape together a couple of birds, and they bring these two birds for this sacrifice. This is the allowance made for them because they can't afford what is normally given. Well, so you can 
imagine this verse. This one's a little mixed up, but it's the same, it's the same passage. So let me frame for you what's happening when they show up at the temple, when they show there. The temple, I, I, at least I have had in mind, that the temple is a, a reverent and holy place. And, and it is. But reverent and holy meant something different in that day and time for Mary and Joseph. The temple was not a quiet place. And reverent meant something different in that day and time than it meant for us now. When Mary and Joseph show up at the temple, the temple's a massive area. It has many outer courts. There's a court of Gentiles that anybody's allowed in. There's a court of women, very patriarchal system, the Jewish system. And so women are allowed in that court along with men, and many sacrifices are made in that area. And then there's an inner court. And then, of course, you move all the way into the Holy of Holies. Until you get into the inner sanctum of the temple, does it start to become a much quieter, more reverent place? Everything that's happening outside in the outer court is a very busy place. It's noisy. There are people from all over the place, speaking all kinds of languages, buying sacrifices, selling sacrifices. You know, you remember what happened when Jesus showed up later in his ministry. He cleared it out and kicked out the money changers. All of this would have been normal chaos, normal confusion, incredibly crowded area. Think them all two or three days, maybe the Saturday before Christmas. This is what the outer course of the temple would have looked like and felt like. They're there to show up with their two doves, their two pigeons, They're there to complete three rituals, and they have to show up on a very specific day, the 40th day. They can't come on day 39. If they're late, they can't come on day 41. They have to be there on day 40. They have to go through different gates for these rituals. And all of this strikes me as I read it and put myself in their shoes and put myself in the circumstance that they're in. It strikes me as incredibly tedious. Doesn't it to you? When I think about what they had to do, what they had to bring, all the places they had to go, they've been away from home for several weeks now, it just feels like a tedious process to me. And then I began to think about the word tedious in my year and maybe your year. So I gave you the definition to see if any of it resonates with you and your experiences throughout the last 10, 11 months. Tedious means too long, too slow, too dull. Tiresome or monotonous, a tedious journey. How does that match up with your 2020? Does it resonate? Which part resonates? Which words? Too long? Too slow? Dull? Monotonous? This is what I think the beginning of Mary and Joseph's journey with Jesus was like. It was built around tedious And tedious is interesting, the word, what it means, and what it represents. And so I began thinking, what what makes something tedious to me? When something feels tedious, what makes it that way for me? What is it for you? You can kind of ponder this. I'll give you my little stream of consciousness, if you will. When something feels tedious to you, what has made it so? What are the actions or the activities or the things that you have to do. There are a few things that have made things tedious for me at times. And this isn't just for this year. We'll just broadly let it describe all the things that we think are tedious. Something is tedious really for me for one of a few reasons. I boiled it down to three. One reason is it's something I don't want to do. That makes it tedious just by virtue of the fact that I don't want to do it. And so I walk into the kitchen and there are dishes to be done and I wish somebody had done them before me 
and that somebody is now down to me and Donna. So, um, and so if they aren't done and then I need to do them or, or maybe we both need to do them or maybe we both walk in and think, oh, we forgot we left this mess and neither of us want to do them. But we look around and we think, you know, our little slaves that we raised, they're gone. And so now I guess it's up to us. We have to do the dishes and they're, it's tedious. It's just tedious. I don't, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it at all. And there are things in my life, your life too, there's that, that bucket, right? Things I don't want to do, but there's another bucket, another little pile of stuff that we're obligated to do. That's different. I mean, it's a little broader than just the dishes or what have you, but things that we're obligated to do. And th- these are the things that you're somebody, my family, a neighbor, somebody's kind of counting on me to do, and I don't want to do it, but I feel like to be a good person or to be a good neighbor, to be a good son or to be a good brother, you know, maybe you did this over the Christmas holiday. You made the phone calls you didn't want to make, or maybe you had some company you didn't want to have. Whatever obligations, these things can feel tedious because you think, I don't want to be doing this. I would rather be doing something else. This just feels tedious. And then there's one other category, and I think this applies to much of 2020 for some of us. Things feel tedious when we don't know how to do it. We have to learn something new. Think about it this way. How many of you are right-handed? Let me see your hands. Right hand. You raise your right hand, right? If you brush your teeth right-handed, I bet you don't even think about the fact that you're actually brushing your teeth. If you want to watch time slow down, if you want to watch, you know, things come to a crawl, just do it left-handed. Or for you left-handers, do it other-handed with your right hand. And you'll notice that, oh, your muscles don't work like they should. It will feel tedious to you. And this is what happens when you have to do something you don't know how to do, like online school. Or manage your people that you work with from a distance. Or learn how to figure out how to build relationships when you can't be in the room with somebody. Or learn how to manage anxiety that doesn't feel like it has an expiration date. It's just going to be here. These are new skills that all of us had to learn in 2020. And you could pile on with your list as well. And the number of things that we've had to learn are, it's just unthinkable. And eventually, our brains, which are great with normal monotonous things like brushing your teeth with your normal hand, all of a sudden become incredibly tedious because we are learning And your brain can only learn so much. It's just tedious. Joseph and Mary, first baby. He's a boy. He's pretty special. Did you bring the doves? Ah, I thought you were going to bring the doves. Which gate are we supposed to go in? They aren't marked. Which gate? You know, we have to go out and come in a different gate for this other thing? Are you kidding? This place is nuts. I can't even hear you. It's crowded. It's noisy. It's incredibly tedious. Do you have to get made clean too, Joseph? I mean, you were pretty messy. It's incredibly tedious. Here's what you'll know when you read these stories in Scripture and you read the whole of Scripture. And this is important. Don't miss it because, honestly, when we think about flipping the calendar over to a new year 
And we think about this year that's been too long and it's been slow and it's been dull and it's been tiresome and goodness, it's been a tedious journey. And this is important for us to know. God is in the details. God is in the tedium. God is in the monotony. That's who God is. If you've ever taken time to either read or we'll just say try to read Leviticus or Deuteronomy, then if anything has been impressed upon you, it should be this. God is a very tedious God. He is deeply in the details. And details are a part of who he is and how he does it. You've read the account of creation. It's like repeat, rinse, repeat. It's, it's over and over. You've read some of the details of the laws and you just think, how in the world are we supposed to live by this? It's so incredibly detailed. It feels tedious. Joseph and Mary, can you imagine them scouring the details of the Torah while they're trying to figure out, well, we got a baby now. What do we do? Where do we go? How do we do it? What do we have to bring? Can't afford a lamb. All of these details. And in these details, God is present. Why? Why would God be that way? Why would it be true that, this isn't original with me, it's this God is in the details was spoken by a, a famous architect who, who had two dictums that he, that he lived by as an, as an architect. Uh, one was less is more. That's what he believed. Architecturally speaking, less is more beautiful, less is more functional, all of that. But then his second was a reverse of the saying that a lot of people say, the devil is in the details, right? And of course, what that means is that the devil is in the actual working out of a plan. You know, that's the hard part. But he's flipped it and he says, this architect famous for his work, God is in the details. Why would God be in the details and in the tedium and the monotony? Given the choice, you and I will entertain ourselves to death. Given the choice, you and I will use whatever we can to be distracted from anything that is going on in here. God is in the details every day because he, I believe, once the entertainment is gone, once the music has stopped, once you're left alone in a quiet room with no noise to distract you, no busyness to pull you away from what is really stirring deep within, then you're left with you and him. And only then can you sort out who he is and who you are in light of being made in God's image. And so God is in the tedium over and over and over again. If you need entertainment or emotion or even a spiritual high to experience his presence, you'll find that eventually that will fade. And when that fades, you're left with just you, you and him. God is always in the details. And good things happen when we have to face who he is and who we are in light of all of that. One of the people that understood this most deeply and I think most profoundly over the centuries is a man that, that we know as Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence 
uh, wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God, or actually it's called The Practice of the Presence of God. And he writes this statement, and I'll give you context for his, his life. This time of business, he's referring to time of busyness or activity uh, that he had to spend during his days, does not with me differ from a time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. Brother Lawrence. His name was Nicholas Herman, and he lived in France, and he fought in the Thirty Years' War in France. And he was injured in the war, and he went to a little Carmelite monastery with fellow monks. He wasn't a monk, but monks that lived there to be tended to, to be healed and nursed back to health. Nicholas didn't have the education or the seminary training that the various people there who had taken the vows had. And so he was consigned to a job in the kitchen once he began to heal. And he loved their community so much that he decided to stay. But he didn't have the training to become a father. So he could only become a lowly brother, Brother Lawrence. And so he made their meals, and he peeled potatoes, and he did dishes. And he wrote down his thoughts about his relationship with God on little scraps of paper and in his journal. And when he died in 1691, all of those were gathered and made into a book. And that book, as I said, was, is called, and you can buy it today, The Practice of the Presence of God. Now you know his story. Now read it again, okay? The time of business, down in the kitchen, peeling potatoes and doing dishes, does not with me differ at all from the time of prayer and in the noise and clatter of my kitchen while several persons are at the same time calling for different things. I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. It's a beautiful sentiment. His entire book is filled with quotes like this that teach you and I what it means to experience God's presence in tedium, in the monotonous, in the dull, in the stuff that lasts too long, that God is in the tedium, that he's in that monotony, and that his presence is there, and that he's waiting for you to connect or commune with him. This is what Brother Lawrence teaches us. That peeling potatoes is as holy as showing up at church, maybe holier for him. He spent time with these people that had learned and became educated and understood what it meant to know God, and yet he's the one that wrote a book that is right now number one in its own category on Amazon, even though it's 400 years old. He also says this. We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatest of the work, not the greatness of the work, but the love for which it is performed. In other words, how you do something is more important than what. The posture of your heart is more important than the thing that you accomplish. When you approach any activity as being too dull or too monotonous for such a great a person as me or you, 
then something is lost in that transaction and we have ceased to understand how God is active in that very moment. No one knows the other names of the, oh, the, the father that led that monastery or the many people that had devoted their lives to God, but we know Brother Lawrence, this lowly potato peeler that wrote about what it means to experience God's presence. So, as the calendar turns and the numbers shift from 2020 to 2021 and you watch online or TV and you pay attention to the sparse crowd at Times Square and you remember the crowd that was jammed in there last year, a very different time, a very different moment. May you not leave behind what you have learned and what God has taught you about the dull and the monotonous. May you not forget that God is in the details. He's in the tedium. He's in the quietness of you wishing this moment would pass. So there's one other thing that I'll leave you with before uh, we sing one more song to close out the year as a church. So they come to the temple. They're doing their thing, and there's a couple people there waiting on them. You can read about in Luke 2 in detail. One is a man named Simeon. He's a prophet. Another is a, a woman named Anna, also a prophet. Simeon approaches Mary, and he has some things to say to Mary and Joseph about this baby. He is a, a light to the Gentiles. He will be the glory of the people of Israel. And then he says this just to Mary. I'm sure Joseph overheard it, but Luke says that this, these words were, were mainly for Mary. So Simeon, waiting for the consolation, and he says this. Behold, this child is appointed. Say this with me, so maybe you'll remember it. Say it with me. For the fall and rise of many. So there's one sentence that Simeon says. You'll see it in your Bible. You can read it in many translations. But in this sentence, he describes the ministry and the life of Jesus in excruciating agony and detail. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And as a sign, his life will be to be opposed. And then he says this, and a sword will pierce your own soul and the end will be, or the goal of this will be, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In the Greek, it's an incredibly complex combination of thoughts, which is why the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, I think says it best. What Simeon says, as you walk through the tedium of your life, the big picture of the gospel cannot be missed, that there will be many, and some will fall and some will rise. When you read the Gospels, it's pretty clear. Those that fall are those that have power, spiritual authority, or standing in the nation of Israel. It is the, the power brokers, the, the Pharisees, that will find themselves on the bottom of the order. Who will rise? Oh, fishermen. Everyday average people that don't know one end of the Torah from another. 
When you watch the story of Jesus play out in the Gospels, the falling and the rising represent who Jesus is as a person, a baby born to humble parents in a humble place without position or status or not even enough money to provide the proper sacrifice at his dedication. The church hasn't changed. When you watch who falls and who rises, it is tied to this prophecy of Simeon. And may you and I be the kind of people that find ourselves only being lifted up, as Peter said. In due time, God will lift you up, Peter would later write. Only if you find yourself in a humble position, same as the Savior. And then Simeon says this. He's going to be opposed. He's not going to be understood. He's going to be killed. He doesn't say that, but that's what it means. And this is going to be a sword that will pierce your own soul. And what happens with Jesus when he's opposed? Well, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. In other words, are you and I willing to walk the path that Jesus walks? And that path is one of our own, picking up our cross and following him every day. Simeon's words in one sentence summarize the entire ministry of Jesus and also point to the pain that Mary will feel. But that pain, of course, is also something that she will deeply treasure in her heart. It's impossible to celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas without having the shadow of the cross in our minds. And the shadow of the cross means that this journey that Jesus is on, 33 years in the making, will eventually result with our own hearts being revealed and humility guiding us to a new place. So just a moment, you'll read about this song of ascent. We'll sing, we'll sing these lyrics of the song of ascent, Highlands. And this, this path is patterned after the Psalms that chronicle the journey from people who were living lower places up to Jerusalem. The path that we, try, that we walk on, the path that we follow with Jesus takes us there, but only because he lifts us up in the process. And so, Lord, right now we pray as a church and as a family, and we ask that you would guide us and lead us in understanding these words. Lord, we believe that we, at times, want to push aside the tedium of our lives and the dull, long, monotonous nature of the last year. But we pray that you would guide us and lead us to a place where we understand that you are in this, you are in the tedium and the details and in the monotony. So make us like a child. Give us pure hearts, clean minds. Help us to understand what you're saying through this old man, Simeon, with baby Jesus in the temple, 40 days old. Lord, we want to walk with you and we don't want to lift ourselves up or give ourselves a place of prominence, but we want you to do that in due time. And so we seek you in humble, in humble ways. Lord, we want to walk with you in the coming year. And so over the next few days, as we have chance to reflect on the past year and ponder the year that is to come, would you guide us and lead us toward a closer conversation with you every day, that we would know your word, that we would know your nature and your character and that we would walk with you every moment whether we're peeling potatoes doing dishes 
managing online school once again or just celebrating the moment where we can draw breath and know your name. Walk with us now, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.